Happy Saturday. It is September 24th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, it's officially autumn in New York. If I had a good singing voice, I would do a little Sinatra version of one of my favorite songbook standards, but I'll just plant it in everyone's mind. It's it's a lovely time of year here in New York. How is it in London? Tell me how you experienced the funeral and, and what you're thinking of life under King Charles. It was an incredible day watching that whole thing go down here in London. And people are probably tired of talking about it at this point, but I will never tire of talking about it. I did get to see the hearse, Snow White-like, because it went right by my street in London. It was pretty incredible to see that. You know, I think the morning mood is officially receding here. We are getting back to life as we know it. I am no longer wearing black. I felt like I had to wear black when I went out to dinner on Monday nights. People are taking this very seriously. So anyway, I feel like London is moving on. Now, of course, I feel like the tabloids are probably just sharpening their knives for Charles. It's unclear if he's going to capture any of the Elizabethan afterglow. We shall see. But it seems like a detente has not yet been reached when it comes to Charles, Harry, and Prince William. From what the, the reports have been saying and from what people have been talking about here, it seems like relations between the brothers are still frosty and Harry's relationship with Charles, frosty as well. I mean, surely he can't be happy about that book, even though they did postpone the release of Harry's memoir. I did, just on a quick surface note, I thought Camilla was the picture of Grace. And I thought Kate Middleton, the Princess of Wales, as she's known now, looked absolutely incredible. Whatever she was wearing, it was working. The pearl necklace of Queen Elizabeth that she wore was extraordinary. She was just incredibly graceful. Also, those kids were so well behaved. My kids are the same age as George and Charlotte. They wouldn't have lasted for five minutes in that service. And those kids were like sitting as straight as can be, not fidgeting, paying attention, singing the hymns for like eight or nine hours straight. I mean, it was an all day here. It was an all day affair. I was in my pajamas and then we, you know, saw the queen's coffin put into the hearse at Hyde Park Corner and it started to drive and I thought, oh my gosh, she's going to be here any minute. So I went, threw on some jeans, went down to Cromwell Road and truly two minutes later, she was driving by. It was unbelievable. (laughs) I like how you said, she's going to be here any minute. I better put the kettle on. She's on the way. I mean, she's still, it's funny because she she does feel so present here that she still feels alive. Like, I think I, I had breakfast this morning with um, a Brit who was saying that she doesn't really feel dead yet because you keep seeing the picture of her on every bus stop and tube station and, you know, the windows of stores. She's She's certainly omnipotent and omnipresent here. Meanwhile, did you read the story? There was a great story in the New York Times that I think we have to talk about just briefly because I feel seen, okay? Dinner in New York, six o'clock is now the most popular time at restaurants. How does this make you feel? It makes me feel great. It's it's like New Yorkers have become Midwesterners. You know, back back in our part of the world, Kansas and Illinois, you usually had supper at what, 5.30, right? Ah, uh, supper. I haven't heard that word in a while, yes. You know, you'd sit down for supper, dinner at 5.30, 6 o'clock, and you'd be done by, by you know, 6.30, 7. And, of course, you know, then when we moved to New York, it's like people are like, what time, what time should we have dinner? 8.30? What? But now it seems like in a post-COVID world, uh, everyone's learned to sort of like, the the pleasure of the early reservation here in New York and the city that doesn't sleep, it seems to be like it's shutting up a little earlier. Many, many restaurants are now closing by 10 o'clock, not having that sort of like 
midnight sort of kitchen routine. Um, so it's, um, I, I don't know. I hope it, it's a temporary thing that, you know, many of the places still stay open. But um, yeah, it's, you know, I went to La Rock last night and I had a 6.30 reservation and it was packed. How was it? La Rock? The La Rock, La Rock is the new Lee Hansen and Riyadh Nazir all-day bistro, right, in Rockefeller Center? Yeah, the guys behind uh, this, the, the story team behind Frenchette. And there's been this amazing um, transformation that's been happening at Rockefeller Center in the last year or so where they've brought in all these chefs who had the hot downtown restaurants and they've given them space in Rockefeller Complex. So you, these guys have gone and they've opened up La Rock. I went there last night. They're also the guys who, you know, were behind Minetta Tavern as well, as I say, Frenchette. But it is so beautiful. The rooms, you feel like you're in Paris, but then you're looking out at that beautiful Rockefeller 1930s deco limestone. So you get the best of both worlds just visually as you're in this beautiful space. And the food is fantastic. It's mainly French with some wiggle room factored in, but it's taking, you know, some of these old French standards, a little bit of the Julia Child playbook and putting it together along with a wine program that features all natural wines. When I was there last night, Ruth Reichel was in the room, as was Martha Stewart. So it's quickly become the place, as I was saying to the guys there, you know, I can only imagine what it's going to be like once the tree is right outside their front door for Christmas and holiday. But it's suddenly become like midtown between this and the polo bar a block, couple blocks away and the other restaurants that are going to go in. It's really transforming it and making it sort of like a destination again. So friend, if you have not been to Le Rock, put it at the top of your list and even make a 6.30 or an 8 o'clock reservation. Just go crazy. Yeah, whatever you like. My favorite thing about the New York Center, I do like Lodi quite a bit, but, but it pales in comparison, I'm sorry to say, to Flippers. The Liberty Ross's roller skating rink that has taken over the ice skating rink there. It's incredible. Well, you know, we Brooke and I stopped on the way out. It was like 10 o'clock watch the roller skaters, it made it feel very, like a very little New York moment. Autumn in New York. Let's get on to the issue, Michael. Yes, we've got a great show with terrific guest Eve Pizer talking about the corrupt world of social media influencers. And Michael Oreskes telling us about what two new books reveal about how the masters of the dark arts had control of Trump and the Trump White House. Plus, Judith Newman tells us about what happens inside those fancy artist colonies. Why don't we begin with the perfect ending? This is our column in the issue in which we ask our favorite stylish people across all different professions and walks of life to share their key components to the good life. And in this week's issue, we have none other than Bette Midler. We're going to call her an icon, even though we don't frequently use that word at airmail, because Bette has had a five decades long career spanning theater, the arts, television, film, music, producing the environment. Honestly, anything and everything. And she has a new film coming out. It's called Hocus Pocus 2, which is the sequel to the 1993 comedy fantasy horror film that everybody loved. And we're so happy to have her in the issue this week, telling us about all the things that make her tick. It's a fascinating read and a great insight into one of the most significant and enduring performers of our time. Actually, how much time did you spend during lockdown singing The Rose? More time than I'm willing to admit. I don't know why I always liked that song, but it took on new resonance for me. And then, of course, this week, instead of like watching new things so we could talk about them on the show, I ended up watching Beaches like 72 times and crying. 
Your fault, Bet. Oh, the tears come too easily when Bet Midler's involved. Ugh, she's so good. Yeah, my favorite is her kiss off, which because it's a family podcast, I can't quote here, but I just suggest you all go to see what her her favorite kiss off line is of all, uh, of all time. Oh, she's still spicy, Michael. After all these years, look, still spicy, Bet. Still giving it to him. And speaking of restaurants, Ashley. Yes. <sighs> okay, you're eating out at all the hot spots. You're eating out at all of the cool places. Have you yet? tasted what apparently, according to George Pendle, is the egg of choice in the UK? The cackle bean egg? Yeah, I have not had the cackle bean egg. Will you tell us about the cackle bean egg? Okay, here we go. Cackle bean eggs. This is, you know, why have a regular egg when you can have a designer egg? These eggs are derived from hens that live on in, of course, where else? The Cotswolds. They have their own Instagram account, Cackle bean eggs. They're very popular. They're quite beautiful. They have very elegant. It looks like they're living in a plain English kitchen. I don't know. It's really insane. Anyway, this is a, it's the egg to moment here in the UK. Yeah. And apparently it's become, you know, whether you're at Harrods Food Hall or you're getting a Fortima Mason luxury hamper or you're in one of the Michelin star restaurants, the chefs all seem to love them because they have this, uh, as George describes it, this lava orange yolk that pops off the plate like a neon sign. So as the chefs would say, it plates well. And it's become the, the only egg that matters now suddenly in on Britain's best menus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look. But I want you to go out. I want you to go out this week and, and taste one and tell me how good it is. You're never going to beat the eggs from the hens in my backyard, Michael, which sadly I'm not enjoying right now as I no longer have that backyard. But what I will tell you is this. It is easy to get an orange yolk in your egg. It's just an issue of what you feed the chicken. And I'm going to leave that to the imagination or for those of you that want to Google it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're getting the most vitamins or minerals or nutrients or free range time. Like it's a fairly simple process. See, my Kansas girl comes out. I'm not going to call it bollocks, but I am <laughs> going to call it branding. Mm. Dun Speaking of branding mm. and bollocks and misrepresenting things, there's a story that I'd like to talk about with the writer Eve Heiser. And it's about Saudi Arabia and how social media influencers are suddenly helping the kingdom that is known for chopping the heads of journalists off to kind of greenwash its 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 image, right? It's amazing. Influencers, they'll do anything for a buck. And Eve Pizer has found out why. Saudi Arabia has realized, you know, you could spend money on a media campaign, you could try to completely revamp your image, or you could simply try to look good on social media. And that is the most expedient way of getting your tourism economy booming. Okay, so we have Eve Pizer here to tell us all about this weird world of influencers who are going to Saudi Arabia to make it the next big thing in travel. Eve is a journalist and a freelance writer. She has covered culture and all sorts of interesting topics for New York Magazine and the New York Times. We're so happy to have her here. Welcome, Eve. Thanks for having me. Take us through the tourism scene in Saudi Arabia right now. What exactly does it look like? Well, like the rest of the world, tourism is generally down just because of the pandemic. But the country opened itself up to tourists from Western and East Asian countries in late 2019. And ever since then, they have been kind of really pushing this rebrand of Saudi Arabia as a luxury destination. And um, it's part of uh, Mohammed bin Salman's plan in general. He has this plan called Vision 2030, 
um, that is basically using Saudi's oil money to make them a sort of cultural destination. And so in 2019, they had this huge music festival called MDL Beast, where they got all sorts of famous Americans to come and post about it. They had like Ryan Phillippe, who was in Cruel Intentions. They had Army Hammer before his scandals. And then they had uh, like Victoria's Secret models and influencers. And they had them post about their trip. And a lot of them ended up posting pretty effective propaganda for the country. In particular, Ryan Phillippe was the only, well, there was really swift backlash. And Ryan Phillippe was the only actor to rush to the honor of Saudi Arabia on Instagram. And so he was arguing with people. There were people, you know, saying things like, true things like uh, in Saudi Arabia, homosexuality is a capital crime. And what did he say? He said, I've made many gay and lesbian friends here. You don't know shit. So clearly the country was able to convince the people who went there that they are this new modern Saudi Arabia. Just to remind the listeners this music festival did take place after Mohammed bin Salman had ordered the killing of Khashoggi, right? Yes. That was a big reason that it inspired so much backlash. It happened like maybe a year after the killing when it was still pretty fresh in the news. Mm -hmm. And so for Americans, at least, they were very aware of what had happened and that this was kind of an ethically dubious place to be promoting on your Instagram. Mohammed bin Salman and the rest of the Saudis come up with this thing, let's rebrand, let's make it a cultural, hip destination, you know, sort of in the desert. They come up with a music festival to sort of maybe greenwash away the Khashoggi killing. But then, you know, the, the, they get all that, as you say, they get all this bad publicity, but then they decide to, they reload again, and then they, and then they come after... As you say in your story, they start to approach these social media influencers and, and to sort of get them to come over and, and do some help for, for them, right? Yes. They're approaching a wide variety of influencers. They're approaching people who are actually famous in other areas like actors or whatnot. And then they're also approaching more small-time influencers that have niche audiences to kind of do their propaganda. And so in the piece, I interviewed one influencer, a travel influencer named Eileen Tamir, who has about 3 million followers on Facebook, although I'm sure most, if not all, of the listeners of this podcast have not heard of her. They're paying her $10,000 to visit the country this month. And for that $10,000, what do the Saudis get from her? two social media posts. She'll probably end up posting more. She's a prolific poster and Saudi Arabia is not the only country that has paid her to visit there and post about it. I was When I spoke to her, she was in Istanbul on a trip paid for by the Turkish tourism board. And she says that she does a lot of these trips. She never accepts less than $10,000 to go. That's astounding. We're in the wrong business. I, I know, right? Well, I mean, what are you sacrificing by accepting an obscene amount of money to visit countries and promote countries that have 
really public human rights issues. And what's curious is, you know, it's not just the getting the influencers to hog for it, but, you know, as you, as you note in your story, six months ago, last, last December, the Saudi, you know, kicked off the F1 Grand Prix in Saudi Arabia. And who shows up but Justin Bieber, ASAP Rocky, uh, all the perform. So it's not just people getting $10,000 per post. It's some bigger names. And then you even you connect that up with the recently launched alternative, they believe, to the PGA, the Pro Golf uh, Tour, which is yeah. Live Golf, which is, you know, offered Tiger Woods almost a billion dollars to come on board. Right. But so they're they're not going to stop. Right. Yeah, I mean, they have a lot of money to spend. What a weird story. Yeah. Distressing, exciting. <laughs> it's just, it's the world we live in. It's great reporting, Eve, and, and I think it's, you know, it just sort of shows, I mean, you know, when they're trying to bring the Louvre and other things in, like, you know, sort of like get these cultural treasures to come over and, and, and to be there so you've, you know, to make you forget that, you know, you can get off the airplane in the airport and not really interact with, the government and how society is governed and instead just move through these bubbles, you know, you forget that there's a lot that you're not seeing and one should be aware of, which is not yeah. to say you shouldn't pay your way to go there if you want to see it. I get that. But if you're being paid to go there to then basically help greenwash away an image, that's something different. All right. Well, Eve, I think you've, you've got quite a beat here influencers and what they'll do for a buck. So we look forward to your next piece of reporting on this. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, Michael, as, as intriguing as that was, I have no plans to go anytime soon. What about you? Mm, kind of, you know, I think I'll just, uh, mm, mm, mm. I've got other things ahead of that on my to-go list. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Well, one of those might be signing up for a writer's retreat, by the way. Ooh. Now, Michael, you've actually written a book, so you probably don't need to do this. But for the rest of us who are incapable of turning out more than a few sentences without being locked in a tiny little cottage somewhere in the country, writer's retreats exist. And Judith Newman visited one called U-Cross, and she is here to tell us everything you wanted to know about the artist retreat, but were afraid to ask. Judith is a New York-based journalist and the author of the book To Siri with Love and a frequent contributor to Airmail. And she is, by the way, one of the most fun people to have lunch with at the Knickerbocker in New York City on University Place, just in case you were wondering. Welcome, Judith. Judith Newman, once again, doing things so we don't have to do them, has gone to U-Cross, which is a writer's colony, and written all about her experience. Judith, what is U-Cross and why did you decide to go there? Well, U-Cross is one of the, let's say, Ivy League kind of residencies that exist in this country. There are literally hundreds of artists' residencies, and many of them are sort of the equivalent of Trump University. They're pay for play, and there's no particular prestige, I, I guess you could say, in going to them. But U-Cross joins Yaddo and McDowell in being one of the places that are very hard to get into. There are all sorts of people who uh, who apply every year. And I never thought to myself, being out in nature, being in a beautiful place uh, could influence me to that degree. But I found when I was there that it gives you a different perspective and it frees your mind a little bit to be entirely without 
obligation. I think that's true for everybody. It's particularly true if you have kids and mates and all of that. So I think that people come to residencies if they can for exactly that, to be coddled because you're really, you're putting yourself back in the position of being nurtured and coddled and told that the only important thing in your life is your work. And how often in real life does that happen? Okay, let's let's just cut right to it though. You're talking about like being coddled, but it seems like there's also some cuddling that goes on there, more than cuddling at some of these places, right? There is. I mean, there's a fine literary tradition of people going there and uh, doing a lot of stripping. You can read about it in, in disguised form in, in all sorts of literature. The whole idea of these residencies, you take a lot of needy, insecure, egotistic strangers and you stick them in a place without their mates and the only thing they have to do really is work and eat. They're going to do as much avoidance of work as possible. Ucross likes to call itself art camp. The other residents who've been to all sorts of residencies, they like to call, let's see, I think they called McDowell sex camp. And then some people called it divorce camp because, of course, you know, you, you, there are endless stories of people engaging in, in stuff they shouldn't while they're there. but. It's not to say that it, it's not to say that like everybody's involved in this bacchanal, but there's enough panky panky to make it kind of as desirable as going to your high school reunion. The thing about residencies that people have to understand is that people come from all over the country, often from academic backgrounds, and in their real lives, it's not like they're told they're fabulous all the time. These these are people who are not famous in the case that I was there. They're not always praised to the skies. And you go to a residency and it's like you've been chosen, you belong, you feel anointed. And to a great degree, I think that that's what these are about. In addition to actually being able to do substantial work because you don't have to do your kids' laundry and you don't have to walk the dog in the middle of the day, and you don't have all of the little annoyances of day-to-day life. This is the kind of high drama, low stakes nonsense that we live for, Judith. So uh, Tales from a Writer's Colony, I think you've got your next HBO show all mapped out. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I would be very happy. I don't know if after writing this, if McDowell or Yaddo are, are going to invite me. Well, Judah, thank you so much for joining us and for your wonderful story in this week's issue. We look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, guys. Bye, Judith. Thank you. Donald Trump has been back in the news this week for many different and intriguing ways, but we are here to talk about his past mistakes and past egregious behavior. We have Michael Oreskes here to tell us all about two new books that address Trump land and stark relief. Uh, Michael is the co-author of The Genius of America, How the Constitution Saved Our Country, and Why It Can Again. And we're so happy to have him here. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Ashley. And thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you both. And I was actually very struck by your image of Trump coming back into the news. I must have missed the part where he was out of the news. When did that happen? We like to pretend that he's not as omnipresent as he actually is. You know, we have to live in some sort of state of denial. But, you know, he fades and it ebbs and flows. Right now, it's it's flowing. But, but Michael, we want to talk about these two books that are coming out. Let's start with Silent Invasion. 
Invasion, which is the book by Deborah Burks, who was the White House COVID coordinator in the early days of COVID. You've read this. Uh, what struck you about it and what should we be looking for? Well, I think what's what's most fascinating actually about this book and the other book we're going to talk about holding the line by Jeff Berman, who was the U.S. attorney in Manhattan, is really something you just mentioned, Ashley. It's the way in which Donald Trump, even if he was far from the scene, bent and distorted everything around him and the way in which people would line up to do his bidding and push others to do it. So these are two uh, professionals, a doctor and a lawyer, uh, the COVID coordinator and the prosecutor in Manhattan. They just both had professional jobs to do. They weren't terribly sophisticated in, aware of, or interested in the politics of the country or of Donald Trump. And yet, repeatedly, both of them found their work distorted and twisted by actions that weren't necessarily even from Trump himself, but they were often from uh, apparatchiks who were simply doing the bidding of Trump or doing what they thought might be the bidding, which is probably the scariest of all. It wasn't always even clear what Trump had ordered anyone to do. They just started doing things that they thought would please the boss. But here it's something that was wildly beyond any kind of um, acceptable norm. And probably the scariest example of all was the example uh, that Deborah Burks gave in her book of the way in which she drew up a set of data to show how bad the COVID pandemic was going to be. And she forecasts that at least 100,000 Americans and maybe a quarter of a million Americans would die just in the first wave of the pandemic. And she, she shared these numbers with the president and she actually convinced him to start taking mitigation efforts. And then a couple of weeks after he started to do this, he suddenly accosted her in a hallway and he said, I'm never shutting down the government again. And she had no idea what had happened. She had no idea why he'd changed his mind, no idea why this sudden and very to her frightening reversal, because she knew that it meant that people would die. Eventually, she figured out what happened. Another set of people in the White House, the economic advisors, members of the Council of Economic Advisors, had taken her data and they'd re-crunched it and come up with a different death rate. Well, to be honest, they got it completely wrong. But by the time she figured out what had happened, Trump had already been turned around by these fake data, false data anyway, if not fake. It was too late to change it. And that was why the Trump administration's handling of the COVID pandemic went so bad for so long. So, Michael, you, you've got Deborah Burke's book, which is, as you said, Silent Invasion. And then you've got Jeffrey Berman, who was for two years as a U.S. attorney in the New York Southern District. His book is Holding the Line. What you mentioned in your story is the books by the big reporters at the Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, they're all sourced and getting their things. But these are really sort of like a different kind of frontline witness to history. And what I've found so striking about what you talk about Berman is, you know, both he and Burks are threatened, as you said, by these malign forces. But tell us more about what Berman encountered and, and, and what's so scary about his interaction with, with these malign forces. Right. And, and Michael, I do agree with you that what makes these books important, they're not getting as much attention as the big books, perhaps, but they are eyewitness accounts by people who are inside, in the trenches. And what Berman describes is a series of interventions from what he calls main justice and particularly from the attorney general, Bob Barr, to twist decisions inside the U.S. attorney's office. You talk about Barr, who's lately, you know, because people, oh, my God, he's now he's telling us 
how he tried to, after January 6th, stop Trump and make him accept the results. And so he's, as you describe, he's kind of on, a, a, you know, a restoration tour, right? Right. Berman really scoffs at Barr. I mean, he says, you know, he can say anything he wants now. But for two years, he was doing the bidding of Donald Trump. He tried any number of times and in any number of ways to get the Southern District of New York, which is probably the single most important prosecutorial office in the United States, one of the most respected, tried to get them to do things that were simply political uh, water carrying for the president. At one point, he tried to get them to indict John Kerry, the former presidential candidate and secretary of state, because Trump was mad at Kerry because Kerry had spoken to some Iranian officials at a time when Trump was trying to undo the Iran agreement that Kerry had negotiated. Now, that might have been bad manners. It might have been unwise. It might have been unpolitical. It wasn't a crime. And but Donald Trump thought it might be a crime. So the attorney general called Jeff Berman, the prosecutor in New York, and uh, repeatedly pressured him to bring an indictment against John Kerry. When Berman finally refused to do it, they shopped it to yet another U.S. attorney. They took it to a U.S. attorney in Maryland, tried to convince him to indict John Kerry. He also refused. Um, that wasn't always the case. Sometimes they shopped cases around and they actually did get people indicted. Uh, and then the case was actually thrown out later. So you've spent time with both these books. Do you come away depressed? What lessons do both of them leave you with? You know, we talk a lot about reforming the electoral colleges. Is there anything that you see that, that both of them are sort of flashing lights that are saying we should be thinking about or be aware of and in in, in how the system is working? It's an interesting thing you mentioned. Okay, so reforming the electoral college is a very interesting discussion way up at 30,000 feet of politics. These people are down inside the operations of the government. And what they illustrate is that you can't just fix the top. You really have to have ways so that people in the government are protected from abusive behavior by their bosses, in this case, the president of the United States and the members of his cabinet and members of his inner circle. I mean, the, the villains in this aren't just Donald Trump himself. It's the attorney general. It's members of the Council of Economic Advisors. And I think it illustrates something that we all know from history, which is that a powerful figure will bend other people to do his bidding. And if you just leave institutions vulnerable to that, bad things are going to happen. But the point is, you need to build safeguards and you need to have ways in which these kinds of things aren't going to happen because hopefully we can fix the political system to reduce the chances of having another Donald Trump. But we may have another one. And even if you improve the political system, you're going to have people in office who are going to try to do things that they shouldn't be trying to do. Those are the details of governing um, that are important to pay attention to because just fixing the Electoral College won't fix this. Okay, Michael. Well, because we're asking everyone, we have to ask you. <laughs> you think Trump is going to run in 2024? And if so, is he going to win? I don't know if he's going to run. You know, I've known Donald Trump for close on 40 years, and I learned long ago not to ever try to predict anything he does. So I have no idea if he'll run. Wouldn't surprise me if he tries to run. I think he will lose. And I think the best thing that could happen to the Democrats would be if Donald Trump won. I think Donald Trump has become a living, breathing wedge issue. He is exactly what the Republicans always used to do to the Democrats. He's now doing to the Republicans. He splits off, not a big, a big group, but 10, 15, even sometimes 20% of Republicans. And it's, the Republicans were a minority party even before Donald Trump. They can't afford to lose the supporters they're losing. So, 
If he runs, I do think he'll lose. All right. The Oracle speaks. Thank you so much, Michael. It's great to be with you guys. And you can invite me back to tell me I was wrong. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks again. And the two books that we're talking about are called Wait, 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 Holding the Line by Jeffrey Berman and Silent Invasion by Deborah Burks. Pick them up at bookstores nationwide. Thanks so much. Thank you, Michael. All right, Michael, we've learned a lot. We've talked a lot. We've heard a lot. Before you go out into that good weekend, anything at all you can recommend? I do. And it comes out of the issue. And uh, last week, I recommended the great David Bowie documentary. This week, there's a book I want to recommend. It's a rock and roll book reviewed by Mark Rozo. And it is called The Birds, 1964 to 1967 by Roger McGuinn, Chris Hillman, and David Crosby. It is a limited edition, almost 400-page book all about the band that basically invented folk rock and went on to become the founding fathers of psychedelic rock, jazz rock, and country rock coming out of the West Coast. You know, as Roger McGuinn, one of the founders of The Birds, said, it was America's answer to the Beatles. But this book, as Mark says, it gets into how the band came together and really their full impact. They invented folk rock, as I said, in 65 with their ecstatic version of Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man, uh, which also prompted, in some ways, Dylan to go electric. But their influence is seen all over the pages here, not only their musical influence, but also their style influence. As Tom Petty once said, they were the best-dressed band in rock and roll. So read the review uh, this week by Mark in the issue. And if you can, get your hands on this book now. It's called The Birds, 1964 to 1967, and it's out from BMG Books right now. And you, Ashley? I'm so sorry to have so much London-centric content. I've got to really get out and see more of the world. But if those who make it to the UK this fall and winter, do check out Winslow Homer's Force of Nature show at the National Gallery. It's on display until January 8th of 2023. It's pretty incredible. It's a, for the first time ever in the UK. It's a real overview of Homer's work. I would say the greatest of the great American realist painters. And it really gives you an incredible sense of what life here was, what life in the US was like in the 19th century, especially in the last few decades. I mean, he covered, he lived from 1836 to 1910. And it was such a transformative time in America that his work really reflects that. So it's called Winslow Homer, Force of Nature at the National Gallery in London on view until January 8th of 2023. Do not miss it. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend. Michael, please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Collette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun.